Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. No, no. Well, I thought, I thought I'd get you on because I, I, I can remember reading in the Ruby League paper and stuff. Some of the things you got up to when you were younger and stuff like that. So I thought I'd get you on interesting bloke. And uh, the bit I, I, I didn't realise is that you were born in Australia, but you grew up in South Africa. How come you made the move from Australia to South Africa? Well, my father was in the Air Force in South Africa. My mum, who was born in Scotland, uh, was adopted by a, a Dutch family who then moved to South Africa, which met my dad while he was in the Air Force. And he took a bit of a sabbatical out to go, to go and see some more relatives that I was in Australia. And that ended up being five years. And I was born... Uh, when they got there. So we stayed there for about five years. My dad was called back with the Angolan conflict, started kicking off again. And he was called back to the Air Force. So we had to, uh, had to go back to South Africa again. What, 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 what was it like growing up in South Africa at the time? Because it was, wasn't the nicest place to be at the time, was it? With all the conflicts no. on and things like that. Well, the, pro the problem is we lived on Air Force bases all, 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 our, all my time there. Uh, my dad was obviously on the border all the time fighting. Uh, the Angolan conflict was... It's like every other war. It's an absolute ridiculous thing that once Africa had won the war, they still gave the country to to the enemy anyway. So it was a stupid war. Um, and it went on for, for years and years and years. Um, you know, also when I grew up, it was the apartheid era. You know, some of the things I saw, uh, which was happening, I was brought up English, which meant I didn't have the Afrikaner values as in, you know, you, you treat people differently with the different colors of their skin and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm quite happy that I was brought up as an English person. Um, Mom and dad actually adopted three half-caste children before I was born, which made them outcasts in the area for many, many years. Um, but uh, they were a bit maverick like that. You know, they tried to get... My mom and dad didn't really conform to a lot of the, uh, let's say, Africana values. So um, it was good, though. It was always good. Never complained. Load of fun. Did, did you feel safe, like going to school and things like that? Was there any time you just thought, oh, God, someone could kick off or you could get shot not, at and things like that? Not during, um, not when we, we were in, as we called it back there, when we lived in Namibia or near Angola, uh, we were fired on every single day we went to school. We, we used to go to school with a tank in the front uh, on wheels, we called them noddy cars with the, the girls bus in the front, then another noddy car behind, then our bus, and then another noddy car behind us. And then there was a helicopter that flew a gunship that flew with us as well. And it was about 30 miles to our school. And we got, we got attacked daily. It wasn't, I can't say it was every week. It was daily. And some of the time when you're sitting in the big armor plated vehicles and you can hear the, the bullet shooting across the side, and we were perfectly safe inside. But the first time it happens, you know, you're wide-eyed and you're really worried. But then once it's happened two or three times, you're not even bothered. You're actually looking out the window to see where they are. Right. You know, six inch thick, you know, you're not going to get hit. So, And as soon as it started, all the kids jumped up and started looking out the windows and stuff. And uh, 
it was it was very very different growing up where I where I grew up, and I think uh, I think I've lived a lot of lives in a in a very in, in a short time. That's what I mean. Like you couldn't imagine that in England now. Can you imagine your kids or kids that you know and things like that going to school, people shooting at you? It's just a totally different way of life, isn't it? It is. And you know, I, I tell my kids. I mean, my I've got two children in Holland. And I've got my two children here, one's 23, one's 17. And I, I, I tell them stories. And they go like, oh, that, that couldn't have happened. And then we go to visit my mum, you know, before lockdown and all that. And my mum would be telling the exact same stories. And they'd be going like, what, that really, really happened? And I'd say, yeah, it really, really happened. You know, the girls busted a landmine once and, you know, got shot up in the air a bit, rolled over, but all we were all strapped in. You know, but that could have been really, really bad if that had been a normal coach or a normal bus. They would have been dead. You know, and, and people don't believe things like that, but that happens. And that they attack the children rather than attacking the bases. I was going to say, because you, you, your dad was on the front lines. That must have been scary knowing that your dad's gone to work doing a job like that when you were a young well, lad. Yeah, my, my dad was in charge of all the operational helicopters in, in the South African Air Force. He, he was really high up, really, he went up really quickly. And, you know, everybody knew him. And as it turned out, he was, uh, he ended up getting killed in 1986, in July of 86. He got shot down um, when he was doing a routine flight in Angola. And he was killed. Um, he, he received Medal of Bravery for that because he actually pulled out the, the, um, the pilot at the time. My dad was a gunner. And the pilot, he pulled the pilot out and got him away before the helicopter exploded. But the funny thing about it was his injuries that he had, he shouldn't have really survived the actual impact and the shooting. But he managed to drag him away before it exploded. So, you know, his funeral was was quite a big thing. Um, there was skeleton stuff and all the bases, the roads were lined. And it was, oh, it was a, it was a big thing. It's a big thing. How, how old were you when that happened, Jamie? Oh, 15. 15. That, that must have been hard at that age because you're quite impressionable, aren't you, Daddy? You go two ways, don't you? If you go downhill because you're depressed, things are on top of you, or you go the other way like you did, maybe yeah, put the well, efforts into sport. My, my dad was like my, um, sort of my best mate. You know, him and I, I was going to school. That was just after I'd left uh, Namibia to go to school back in South Africa again. Um, I joined high school and all that, so I went to boarding school. And I really enjoyed that. But coming home in the holidays was the best thing for me. And actually the night that he, he was shot down, I was supposed to go flying with him, which I did a lot. But it was really weird because when we got to the, the helicopter, it was Alouette threes. He just said to me, can you go back to the hangar and wait for me? And I only arrived home that day. So I was like really looking forward to go flying with him. And he just said, just go back to the hangar and wait for me. And I was like, really, you know, when, you, when you're 15, you were petulant. And yeah. you know, my last words to my dad were in anger. You know, and basically when they took off, you know, you, you, as a child, you're going, you know, I hope you crash and die and all that kind of nonsense. And, and my worst nightmare came, came true, which is why I, I tell my kids, you know, we don't go to bed angry. We always say, you know, fine, we'll talk about it in the morning, but we're all sorted now. Because my last words were anger. It's out of, I don't have many regrets in life, but that would be my biggest, biggest thing, faux pas, is, is, saying them angry things and then within an hour he was dead and I never got to say anything else to him so uh, really tough that and I know you said about going one way or the other I actually went the wrong way 
and my mum decided to come back to England um, to live. She brought my brother and my sisters with her and I decided uh, that I was going to rebel like I did and I was going to go to boarding school. So I left home pretty much and I was a ward of, of the school. Um, the headmaster was my legal guardian and, uh, and I went to boarding school and, and that, I finished my schooling. And it just so happened that when I when I'd gone to do my um, national service was uh, just at the end of that, just after that, I got a contract to come play rugby over here. So it, was, it all sort of worked out. How, how old were you when you started playing rugby? What age did you start playing? Because I'm, I'm not South Africa. Being, yeah, I played rugby from being small. You know, um, I was always playing rugby. I was, uh, you know, always played wing or fullback and... Um, my dad knew that I had a talent, but my talent was more athletics than it was rugby at the time. And uh, I played I played Craven Week a few times, which is like your biggest rugby union competition over there for juniors. Uh, that's like a, a state, a, a countrywide thing. And, you know, my dad's wish was that I'd play for the Springboks one day. And I played junior Springboks afterwards, but never got to the Springboks side because I'd already joined a rugby league. Uh, which, which made me a, a an outcast again from the rugby union. I was banned from ever playing rugby union in South Africa again, which wasn't a major deal for me because I was already over here. Um, though those things aren't happening anymore. You know, the rugby union and rugby league work together, but now in back home, the rugby league will never take off in South Africa because rugby unions are the religion. Um, well, that, that's what I mean. And was rugby league a big thing in South Africa then? Had anyone heard of it? Or is that just because you, you the Australian background? No, it, it, uh, I was playing, I just, I just got into the Western Province side um, the, in the Curry Cup. And um, Mike Bailey, the then Springbok fullback, got injured. So they called me up from the under-20s, which well, I'd been having a good season, to be fair. And my first game for the for Western Province, I scored three tries and... You know, it was like hailed as, you know, this is going to be the next big saviour of, of Western Province rugby. And, and there was, you know, I started to read the headlines and you start thinking about the headlines and, um, and I got a bit ahead of myself. But So when he came back from injury, they dropped me back, uh, back to the 20s again. And, and I had a strop like I do many times in my life. Um, and at that stage, uh, there was a guy called Tony Lane, who was from Castleford. And he came and spoke to me. And he said that my game was suited to rugby league. And he thinks that I should go. Um, being a volatile character anyway, he gave me some videos to watch. And the videos were of State of Origin in 1992. Yeah. Um, and that was like block a roach and then just dropping the ball and knocking 10 bells of stuff out of each other and then playing rugby afterwards. And so for me, I just thought, oh, I'm sold. This is it. I'm doing it. As it turned out, South African rhinos were playing against the Russian Bears a week after that. So it was quite a coup for rugby league to have a rugby union player from you know, playing in the provinces coming to play rugby league. Um, so we played in the October the 27th was the first test, I think. And then the other one was just in the beginning of October. And four days after that, I left to come here. Because rugby um, union wasn't professional at the time, was it? R rugby union had made that switched over, so there wasn't really anything holding you back, apart from maybe being an international player. But financially, if you're not coming from a rich family, like a lot of league lads, you need to get a yeah. wage, don't you? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I was working for the RSPCA at the time. I'd done my degree through them, so I was quite happy to, to I had a decent job. I had a real good, you know, I was happy there and all that. But the chance to be able to play rugby and get paid for it, you know, back in them days was like it's every child's dream. And um, so at 21, I came over here and um, I've never looked back. What was it like coming to Castleford? Was that a culture shock? Coming um, from South Africa, was. obviously, to move there. It was, because I landed here on the 27th of November. Um, and I landed at Manchester Airport. And I got picked up by the chair, then chairman and, and coach Daryl van der Veld and, and Graeme Stedman came as well. And, you know, they invited me in and got in the car and drove down the long M62 back to Castleford. And all I remember was being able to see nothing on the left and nothing on the right except these orange lights that went all the way down. I was following these orange lights of the M62. And um, and I stayed in the Weldale Hotel, which is down the boot room, which is opposite the club. So I was in there for about nine months. And uh, and to be fair, if you look at, you know, you talk about spiritual homes, you know, Castleford would probably be mine. I met a lot of really nice people there. Lovely place. I could walk from one side to the other within an hour. Yeah. Um, yeah. And loads of nice people. And I was taken, you know, they, they, they took me to their hearts. They looked after me and uh, people I'd never met just came up and started talking to me. And I, I wasn't used to that from South Africa at all. Um, so, you know, I fell in love with the place straight away. It, it's, that's the thing about rugby league, isn't it? It's so friendly. Like you, you could play at any level at rugby league and still talk to us. Like Super League players are talking to amateur players and youth players. Talk. It's such a weird little community. It's just a shame more people don't know about it. But when you were at Castleford, were you a full-time player or did you have to have a day job as well? No, I was a full-time player. Um, there, there was. I, I never want to talk bad about a club, and you know, you've got to you've got to take this as how it's meant to be. The board and the supporters and the players and everyone were great with me at Castleford. They really looked after me. Um, I felt welcome straight away. But Daryl van der Veld, who was coach then, had a different issue. So the contract that I signed to come over here was just sort of a verbal type of one that was written on a piece of paper quickly and sent out. So when I got here and I started playing, I played a few Alliance games and I was on the bench for the Regal Trophy game against Carlisle, which I came on and I scored. Um, they kind of said to me, you're going to be more of an Alliance player and a bench first team player, but probably more Alliance for your first year. And I went, well, fine, that's what I've got to do. That's what I've got to do. But he just said, we signed you as a first team player and we don't think you're there yet. So, we, you know, there's not going to be any money. And I'm going, well, you know, I've left everything behind. I'm here. Um, and he just went, Let, that's it. You can take it or leave it. And um, it was actually Tawara Nikau, who was, you know, one of the greatest players I've ever seen, to be fair. But um, his wife was his manager. And he said to me at training one day, he said, oh, you look a bit glum, what's up, man? You know, and I said, to be fair, I've got no money, you know. I'm living yeah. across the road there and I don't even know if they're paying the bill there and all that. And his wife took it on. She went into the club and got my contract signed out and actually got paid more than I was going to get paid before. Right. Uh, but I, that, that only lasted for about a month and a bit. And then I went to Oldham. Oldham were in the division below and they were looking for promotion. They were looking for an outside back that could come and do some stuff. And so I signed for them about six weeks after getting here. What was it like at Oldham? Because you'll have had a few characters. That was like, you always see the clips on Facebook, don't you, Kelvin yeah. Skerritt taking people's heads off. That 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 era in the 90s was probably the roughest rugby, or 
looking in just looks like you'd have to be hard to play each team had like, like yeah. a hard person didn't they well the first the first few games I played were a five meter rule and then I went yeah. to a ten meter later on um, but Oldham at the water sheddings you know I remember getting a phone call from back home from a reporter and he goes oh what do you think of Oldham then you know never heard of it don't know where it is what's it like and I said oh it's like in the hills in the valley and it's real nice but I said I've never seen the sunshine I said, yeah. I've been here. I was there nearly a year. I didn't see the sunshine once. And uh, you had to actually leave Oldham to see the sun. And the water sheddings was the exact right name for it. It's just misty all the time. But old traditional wooden stadiums, just superb to play for. And I had a real good time. I got promoted that year as well, which was great. And uh, did you find settling into rugby league easy coming from rugby union? Because I think being an outside back, you've got your best opportunity, haven't you, to swap cords. It's yes. the ones in the middle, I think, struggle, especially forwards, league forwards going to the union. There's no position for them and vice versa. Whereas the outside yeah. backs, I think you've got the best opportunity, like you sell Jason Robbins to them type of players. Yeah, yeah. No, I, f I found it pretty easy pretty, quite quickly because I was playing more fullback than I was fullback and wing. It wasn't until I was more experienced I started going to, uh, to centre and second row and stuff. But I really enjoyed playing rugby league. I, I took to it straight away. It was, it was really aggressive and and very one-on-one -on -one and confrontational, which I really enjoyed. So I was happy. I was really happy. Do you miss that element of it now when you watch it? Do you, do you watch rugby league now and think, oh, certain items of it, elements of the game that I preferred when I played? Is there something like that where you watch it now and think, oh, it's not quite that rough edge that it uh, used to have? Well, when I started refereeing, which I think you want to go on to later on, I found that uh, going into refereeing meetings, the game became too fast. Yeah. You know, you had, you had six seconds, seven seconds from collision to play the ball. And when you've got three guys on one guy and they're putting him on the ground, six, seven seconds is a long time to have. Uh, it's a very short time for someone to get up and play the ball after that. And I just thought that all the... It's almost like the spirit of the game disappeared in that. You know, it just went away because th those big hits and those big shoulder charges were, were what made the game what it is. You know, people came to see the big buffs. They came to see a fight or two every now and then. You know, and, and I played many years. And to be fair, I saw a lot of fights, but I never, ever saw anybody get knocked out or, no. or two shots or anything like that. It was always a two people fighting. Hey, let them go for it. Let them fight. Um, you know, just running in from the back and stuff. I've n I never really saw that. So, you know, I, I got into a lot of scraps in my time, but it was always one-on-one. -on -one. A lot of time I was hoping my friends were going to jump in soon, but, um, you know, you grab hold and you close your eyes and you swing and see what happens. And, and normally within, you know, three or four seconds, it's over and everyone's done. And, and the other good thing I liked about it was as soon as the whistle went at the end or the, the hooter went, it was shaking hands all around. There was no, there was no issues whatsoever. And you're gonna have a drink in the bar, and it was all good. Um, so I think rugby union could learn a lot from rugby league in, in them kind of terms. You know, just that uh, we just need some more biff back in the game. I think. Well, it, it, it's weird when you say about the fighting. Like I've I've played in matches myself, and the whistle goes, and they're going throwing a punch to a handshake, aren't they? It's just that it's just gone. Yeah. And you often find that people fighting with each other are the most alike. Yeah. Rugby, isn't it? It's normally like they're, they're prop forward who's a bit angry, you're prop forward. And when they go in the pub afterwards, they're sort of best friends, aren't they? Yeah. Or if you get picked for a, a county team together, and so, they always end up being really good friends because you think you're respecting because he's had a go. And I can honestly say, in all my years, I never saw a fight on a field taken off the field afterwards. Never, no. ever, ever. 
and and that is that's endearing. That is really good. How, how long were you at Oldham for? How long did you play for Oldham for? That, that one season. Uh, finished the season off. I uh, signed then in the December, um, end of December, and uh, we got promoted. Um, and in that season, I got promoted. And to be fair, I, I liked it there, but there were a lot of changes going on. You know, Bob Lindner signed from Australia and he was going to take it over as coach. And, you know, I don't like change. I didn't like change. I just want, you know, I liked things the way they were. But then uh, I got a call from Doncaster um, and they, they were after a player and uh, they were they were looking to do something, you know, to actually get themselves um, out of the division and and possibly see how far they could go. So I was lucky enough to be one of those. They signed uh, myself and Sonny Wakaru and Carl Hall, Vila Matuatia, um and Andy Green um, signed as well. Alex Green, Rocky Turner from Warrington, and uh, they signed some really good players. And it was a it was nice to go from that promotion side into a side that was pushing for promotion again. So it was pretty interesting. That was the most successful time, wasn't it, in Doncaster? One of the more successful times. I, I seen a video, it was your cell plane, and I think Vila Metautia when he had hair. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't remember that he had. I couldn't remember him playing for Doncaster because he always seemed to play for St. Helens when I was younger. That's well, he, probably got he, the biggest he, legs I've ever seen. He came from Chorley. He actually right. signed from, for Chorley Borough. Which went Lancashire Links and then Blackpool Panthers and whatever other names they had, and he only played one game there and they didn't pay him, so he left and he came to Doncaster. So it was, um, but he was a biker, you know, he was in a biker gang in, in New Zealand. Oh, was he? Oh, really? Yeah, he was. He wouldn't he was mess with him. Oh, that, that's what I mean. Like, uh, I think it was in the it was in the papers recently, wasn't he? Someone was bullying yeah. his son, and yeah. he, I. I couldn't help but thinking if I was going to bully someone soon, it wouldn't be Vila Metalti. So I'm not saying like you deserve to get money, no, no. but I'm, I'm with you there. And to be fair, um, I would have done the exact same thing he did. So, but yeah, you don't mess with Vila. He's a tough man, really tough man. He took yeah. exception to me getting sent off in our, when we got promoted to the big league. Uh, we played, I think it was about the fourth or fifth game. We played St. Helens in one, we played Witness in one. We played Leeds and just lost. And then we played Wakefield, I think. And then we played Oldham. And when we played against Oldham, I got sent off. Uh, Mike Kowiti made a break. And as he drew me, he passed. But I jumped. And I hit him on the side of the, on the, side of the jaw. And I broke his jaw, which I didn't mean to do. Um, but I got sent off after 13 minutes. And I changed. And I walked from the watersheddings to the motorway. And I... I by the time I changed and got walking, uh, a Doncaster supporter had driven past and they saw me and they put, took me back to Doncaster again. And Vila took exception to that. And I think that's that's the only time ever that I've looked and gone, oh God, I'm in trouble here. I'm going to I'm going to get sorted out here. But to be fair, we we had a bit of a a dust up, but I managed to keep my head in one place, so I was quite happy. Who was the toughest player that was around? Because he had so many tough players in them days. Like each team had someone that would probably yeah. be like, yeah, Dean Sampson's, Kelvin Skerritt's. Who, who was the toughest players that you played with and against around about that era? It, it's really difficult to say because my definition of a tough player might be different to yours. Yeah. You know, for me, I found it harder to play against like the Lee Gilmore's of the world who are you know six foot two or three, quite strong and very fast as well. 
Whereas a, a Neil Cowie came running at you, you know you're going to get elbows and knees all the time, but he's not going to step you. So you just have yeah. to stand in the way. Like Calvin Scarrett, he's going to come and, you know, Nick Fuzzard, he's got that big plant pot on his arm. You know, he's going to try and whack you with that first. So they're not hard to, to defend against if you can get your positioning right. But the Lee Gilmores and the Johnsons of the world and, and even the Jason Robinsons, people like that who are, who are strong and fast, were really hard to play against. But I think the, the hardest I've ever been hit, as in a punch, was uh, playing against Widness. Um, and it was, oh, God, I can't remember his name, I've just forgot his name now. Um, big Samoan guy, um, Kurt Sorensen. Oh, Kurt, oh, yeah, yeah. I played the ball and I went to push him away because he'd sort of given me a bit of an elbow on the ground and stuff. And as I stood up, I played the ball and pushed him and he just punched. And I didn't wake up till just after half time. And I, I saw the video and, and I was out, sparked, came and took me off the field, put me on the side. There was no head things in them days. At half time, they said, Are you ready to go back on again? I went, uh, Yeah, sure, I can. And uh, played the rest, but it was the hardest I've ever hit in my life. Well, he, so, he coached at Whitehaven, my local club, and every, every, everyone used to say, Whatever he said just went. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? We're doing 20 laps, just do 20. No one ever back chatted, apparently. He's one coach, I uh, just sort of, because you didn't know how to take him if He wasn't like having a laugh or out like that. So everyone just doing whatever face, he said. Poker face, didn't he? Poker I, face. Never, never smiled much. I think he worked on the doors since uh, packing in rugby, or he did for a few years, maybe a few years ago, but I think uh, maybe suited him. Yeah, really. No, you'd no, leave, that's it. Leave straight away if he said, Can you go? Drop <laughs> your drink and run. How long were you at Doncaster for? It's because you were there for um, a bit longer, weren't you? Yeah, well, I played that first season when we got promoted um, in the first, I think it was the second division then, and we got promoted to the big league. And obviously I played 10 games there, and that's when I got banned. Um, at the end of them 10 games, we were, you know, fifth or fifth, I think we were fifth or sixth, and we were looking pretty good. And uh, I, got, I got banned then, and obviously... The club struggled a bit after that. And it's not, I'm not saying it was because I was on the team. It was just we had quite a good team, and I think it, it affected the team in a bad way. And they ended up getting relegated in the year and going out of business. Because my I'd actually signed for Leeds um, the day before I got banned. Right. Um, I'd been to a hotel on the Monday, and they were paying £150,000 fee for me to Doncaster. It was going to be the, the tax bill, which they needed to pay. And uh, I met up with um, with Andy Caddick, who was then whatever general manager, whatever he was, uh, the then coach who was um, Dougie Lawton, and there was uh, Gary Schofield and Ellery Hanley. And, and Schofield and Hanley took me to one side, and they sat talking to me, while my agent spoke to to um, to Dougie and them, and sat talking. And we're going, yep. Yeah, you know, this is the place for you, you'll be fine. And I said, great, sign the papers there and then we were happy. And then the next day I got banned, so contract got torn up. But um, well, Were you the first person to get, get done for that? Because I, I can't remember testing the things in the 90s being such a big thing. Was it? Did it come as a bit of a shock or did you know it was going to happen? Or I didn't really know. I mean, I've, I've told the story many times and, and people can take it as they want. They can say, I've got no reason to lie. You know, I yeah. did my two years and I came back and I, and I, you know, I got tested most weeks after I came back and I was never, never, ever had a positive test. Um, I didn't actually know what, what I was taking. I had a hernia um, in the groin and I was struggling. 
And, you know, I got told this is what would sort it out. And I was getting these injections once a week. And, um, you know, I'm not going to say where, where I was getting the injections from because, because somebody who still works in rugby league was, was, was giving them to us. And I thought I was fine with them. I didn't think there was anything wrong. That's why when the test came up, remember, this is back in the early 90s now, 94. Yeah. You know, I got told that when I went into the cubicle to have a purse, I got, a, I got called to one side by one of our guys and said, listen, there's a condom with person behind the, the toilet. Just take that, break it off, pour that in the thing, and you'll be fine. And I went, oh, no, I'm not going to need that. You know, I didn't think there was anything wrong, so I didn't even do, use it. And I could have because the door was closed. I could just grab that and just pour it in, and, and nobody would know any different. The 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 bad side is I got I got tested, I got found positive, and I I got banned for two years. Um, I wasn't the first because Simon Tufts had been done just before that anyway, but he wasn't a higher profile player. He was playing in the lower leagues. But a doctor told me afterwards, when I, started, I started having some problems, and the doctor said to me, if I'd stayed on the steroids that I was on, I probably would have been dead. So I probably would, my kidneys would have packed in and liver would have packed in and all that. So to be fair, me getting banned is not a regret that I've got. It's actually probably saved me a lot of you know, health issues. There was no knowledge back then, was it? Even when I was um, growing up, I, I knew lads that were 16 taking anything that they could get in the gym. And now they can't, like, they're on testosterone, things that, that problems can't have kids and things like that. And that was in, like, the early 2000s. So in the 90s, it was even worse. But like you said about your injury, because I, when I played at Whitehaven and things, if someone got injured, it means they couldn't do the day job. So yeah. I know lads have done the same. So if they put the shoulder out, it means if yeah. they're a scaffolder, let's say, yeah, yeah, they couldn't yeah. go to work. So that they're not getting the rugby money. They're not getting the work. So the last thing on the mind was probably improving the rugby game. It was just trying to get so they could go to work and stuff. So I can yeah. see what you And there's more than yourself that's gone down that route. Obviously, there's other ones that have gone down the other route trying to improve. But I, I know I knew at that stage of many, many players that want stuff. You know, I never mentioned any names because it just wouldn't be the right thing to do. And, you know, I had a bit of dignity about it. I, I walked away you know, pretty quietly and didn't make too much noise. And I always wanted to come back. I always wanted to get playing again. I wanted to prove that I wasn't drugs that were making me a player that I was. And I think over time, I, I probably did that. You know, um, there wasn't a shortage of players, of clubs wanting to sign me. In fact, I got signed within a year of my ban. I was already signed up to witness. Um, they just said to keep it quiet. And I really signed up and they give me a program to follow, keep myself fit and all that. So I played a bit of American football at the time as well, which was keeping me good, well fit. So yeah, it was good. Well, it, it, it's weird because I can remember when the testing and that come, like you say, so you could avoid it. Like I remember going training once and they said, oh, testers are here. So you had the chance if you wanted to just go home or anything like that. So if you got caught, it's because you didn't think you were taking some or you weren't doing something wrong. Yeah. And I can imagine in the 90s, it, that was 10 years before I ever heard about a drug test. It was being even easier to get away with it. Well, one one player that got tested with me was supposed to be tested with me. Just got in his car and drove home. And they, they, they followed yeah. him to the house. And they said, oh, we need you tested. They said, yeah, get lost. And uh, I went, okay. And they just left. They never got tested. So, and nothing happened. Nothing came of it either. So, 
it's a, it's one of those things. It's you know, but like I say, I said early on when we started talking, I don't re- I don't have many regrets in life. If I'd carried on doing that, I might have signed for Leeds and and been you know winning championships with them and all that, and that might have been brilliant and fantastic. But where would my health have been when I got to forty, or now that I'm yeah. nearing fifty, I probably wouldn't be here. So, you know, one and I will say this as well: when I was on the stuff, even though I didn't know what I was taking, I felt like I felt like a train. You know, nice. I felt I felt awesome. I felt really good. You know, I wasn't ever sick. I wasn't ever struggling. I had no injuries. Um, I was playing best rugby ever played, um, and I just had this. I was going to the gym and I wanted to go to the gym every single day, which is the problem of the stuff is it's making you want to go there. And the more you go to the gym, the more you see the, the results, the more you want to get some more of what you're having. And even then I, I thought to myself, you know, whatever is fixing me is fixing me all over. Yeah. You know? And um, I started to get a little bit worried because I, I started to get a really bad temper, really bad temper. And I, I've got a bad temper the best of times. And then when you juiced up to the eyeballs as well, and I used to lose my rag real quick. And it was, um, it was like a, like a turning a, a piece of paper over. It'd be just there. Boom. And I, it was either happy and laughing or I was really angry with everybody in the world. And, and, uh, that needed to stop my wife. I've just been my wife at that stage. And she said that it was, it was horrible because sometimes I'd be happy. And next time I'd be, raging and so the stuff's not good man it's not good and i'm sure there's other ways people can get ahead without without taking stuff like that was it tough having that two-year break though because your job's rugby isn't it like for them two years what what did you do financially to fill the gap my wife was working at the dome Doncaster Dome at the time so you know we, we relied on her wages a lot i had a lot of help from a lot of different people um my sponsor at the time my personal sponsor was uh june and peter baker who live in Doncaster um, and still are there now. And he had a plumbing business and he used to sponsor me. He's my personal sponsor. And uh, they took took myself and my wife in at the time and just said, look, you come stay with us. I worked with him and he was giving me sort of just a bit of cash in hand for some, uh, um, just for spending. <coughs> and they were superb. They looked after me a real lot. Um, you know, we had, we had, I had help from a lot of people uh, in many different ways, but it's um, it made uh, I think it made my wife and I a lot stronger as well because we had to live with almost nothing. We did yeah. decide to move out after a year, but we lived on on the breadline. You know, we used to go to like four different farm shops to get our food because we couldn't afford to go to like a Tesco or an ASDA. So we used to go and buy our food from all different places. And and you know, when you live like that, and then you go back to you know, when I went to Witness, I was signed as a professional player again. You know, then you look at the money and you go, well, please, you know, we only lived on, you know, four, five, six hundred pounds a month before. And now we've got this. We should be saving. But you know, we went on a splurge and we bought a new car and bought a caravan and bought a jet ski and we bought all other stupid toys. And But it was it was nice. It, and it made us really strong as a couple because we, we went through a lot. What was your time like at Witness? Because Witness are a famous club, and at the time they were doing pretty well, weren't they? Uh, at that, when, when I went to Witness, uh, Dougie Lawton had obviously left Leeds and he'd gone to Witness, hence why he signed me for Witness. As soon as he went there, he basically got in touch with me and said, I know you're still banned, but I want to sign you for Witness. Will you sign with us now? 
and I signed a pre-contract with I signed a contract with them and they weren't paying me anything until I started playing again but I was signed up already um, they were helping me out with a bit of training and stuff and then uh, they were giving us a hotel room in Woodness where we'd go over and watch some games while I was still banned and uh, so we sort of got integrated into the community quite quickly, but I really enjoyed Witness. It was when the old Norton Park was knocked down and they were building the Holton Stadium. So there was only fans at the two ends. There was no fans yeah. on the sides. Um, that was a bit awkward, a bit, a bit weird, a bit odd. But um, it was quite nice because you saw the club go from the old Norton Park to the new Holton Stadium. So it was quite nice that I, I was part of that transition. And uh, I captained the club as well um, for a long time. So I was I was really liked it. Um, I was there about 18 months. So I was into my second year where um, Halifax came to to sign me. And they, they bought me for, I think, three players went the other way. And uh, I went to Halifax. I can, I can remember you playing Halifax. I remember when I was younger thinking, not many people make the jump from fullback to second row. Because I remember yeah. like a similar position, I thought, I couldn't imagine me ever making that jump because of too much of a dweeb. But to make that it jump, was weird, really. it was weird because um, we had a we had an issue um, where we had a lot of outside backs. You know, you had Damon Gibson, Dale Powell, you know, David Booving, and a few others, and Freddie Tuilangi. Freddie was there as well, and and it turned out that we had a lot of outside backs, and we were all playing. Um, but he just said to me the one day he came to a training to did uh, John Pendlebury. He goes, "I've got a position I want you to try." And he said, I'm going to put you in the second row. And I was exactly what you just said there. <laughs> I don't know, put my head in scrums and stuff like that. Because when you do that, you don't come out. And um, I remember playing against Wigan on Sky. It was my first game in the second row. And I got man of the match. And I think I made about 49 tackles, I think it was. And I found I found the niche that I, that, that John Pendlebury had, had seen that. He signed me as a fullback centre and put me into second round and prolonged my career by quite a lot of years, I think. But you had that aggression, didn't you, from uh, mm. outside back? You don't normally get that mm. with outside back. So going into second round, you're quite strong as well. So putting yeah. them together, it probably made sense Enjoyed at it. the time. I had more fun playing in the second row because I was busy. And I found myself not getting sunburned as much in the second row because I was too tired to talk. Because my problem was yapping all the time. See, when I was at fullback, I could be yapping at the referee all game. And uh, got me Simbin many times. But when I was in the second round, I was too tired. I remember Carl Kirkpatrick coming to me after that game, saying to me, you know, oh, really good game. It was nice to do my shot the whole game. And I said, I was too tired. I couldn't talk. <laughs> well, then you found yourself a good position. I, I, um, how long were you at Halifax for? Because I, I, that's when I was younger. That's where I remember you playing Halifax, really. So you must have been there for quite a while. Yeah, nine years. I did nine seasons altogether. And... Uh, I did seven seasons and then I went to Huddersfield for one year in 2005 and then I went back for two more years when they went part-time. When I went to Huddersfield with Jim Gannon, um, the club got relegated that year and they asked me to come back in a part-time role. So uh, nine seasons altogether. How did you find going from a, a full-time player to part-time player? Because I, I, I think, honestly, a part-time player has to work harder than a full-time mm -hmm. player. Because if you've got a job, 40-hour yeah. week job, plus being a semi-professional rugby player on top, and you've got the full Sunday, you're travelling to Whitehaven or somewhere miles yeah, yeah. away, it's a, it's a tough life, isn't it? It was, but I, I'd, I'd set up a, a landscaping business. Um, it's something I was doing anyway. So when I was finishing at Huddersfield, 
I knew that I didn't want to sign another professional contract. Um, so I, I decided to set up the business and I was working while I was playing at Halifax part-time, I was working. It did come in, I did come into a bit of conflict with the club because they're saying, we want you to come and do weights. I'm saying, I'm lugging stuff and digging holes all day. I don't want to be doing weights in the afternoon or evening before training. Um, I found that part quite difficult, but, uh, but I, I, I enjoyed being part-time as in it didn't rule all my life. I was getting to the stage where I didn't want it to be ruling my life again. Um, but when that two years was up and I decided I'm now going to hang my boots up, I'm done. I got a contract off from Wakefield and Salford to go back full time again. And I just turned 34, I think. And I just, I just didn't want to do it anymore. You know, I just got that stage where I just didn't want to do that. It wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. And um, I just left it, walked away. While I, could, while I could still walk and run and play and do all that with my kids and stuff. And I think I did the right thing. It, it, it's a weird one in rugby league. I've said it a thousand times. A lot of rugby lads don't seem to, to look what's going to happen next. So they get into like 28, 29, 30, and they have no idea what they're going to do next. And you think you, you're a snap cruise ship away, a broken leg away from potentially being finished, aren't you? Because if you yeah. Super League clubs, it's not like Union where they'll give you a nice five-year contract. It's normally a one-year, two-year. And if you get yeah. a bad injury... You could be out, couldn't you? I think in rugby, that's education. I think a lot of young lads should have something coming through saying like, not, not maybe when you're 18, 19, but when you get into late 20s, you've got to have an eye on the ball a bit, haven't you? You do. You do. You've got to know what you're doing. I mean, I was kind of lucky that everything I, every situation I found myself in, there was always an outlet for me. In 1999, I got accused of biting Lee Breers, um, playing for Halifax against Warrington. Um, and I got given three months uh, suspension or 17 matches right. and Halifax just went, that was in the June and they just said, well, you know, we're cancelling your contract. You've breached your contract by, you know, getting a ban and I try to sort of say, well you know, what happens in three months time then? They said, oh, well, we'll talk about re-signing you then but my wife and I oh, we, had, we had idiot paparazzi parked outside the house taking pictures of wherever we went and it was just really, it was stupid Um so we went off to Wales in a caravan for a little while just to get away from everything. And while I was there, the day we arrived there, which was two days after the ban, I got a call from um, a good friend of mine. Um, and he said, I'm coaching in Paris, a rugby union, and uh, we've just gone professional. We want to sign you. And I went, well, I'm banned. Though. He said, no, you're not banned. It's nothing to do with that. You can come. So... The day after that, I was on a plane off to Paris and signed a rugby union contract with Racing, well, they're Racing 92. Um, I have the honour of being their first ever full professional player, um, which was great. And it was lovely. It was a different world altogether there. You go from the stress and, and, and uh, mind-numbing rugby league all the time to them not giving a damn over there. I mean, we had red wine in the, in the change of it half time. Guys were smoking cigarettes and cigars in the at halftime. It was it was surreal. It was something I've never seen in my life before. There's me headbutting cupboards and wardrobes, and them all having a cigar and a glass of wine. And then we go out for the second half, and they're like, you know, the, the favorite thing is I played. Um, I was playing inside center there, and the number ten was the current French number ten called Frank Bernal, who was a sensational player. But he's like just saying to me, I'm I'm like bashing the cupboards and beating things. And he's saying to me, his favorite thing was calm English, calm, calm. Like, How can you be calm? We're losing. 
it's calm, we win later. And we went, all right, then fine. And then as soon as the game was finished, it was off upstairs and it was like beer and wine on tap. There was just wine everywhere. There was free food everywhere. And it was, it was ludicrous, crazy. Did you not tempted to stay in rugby union? Because everyone knows the money in rugby union is better. Lifestyle's a little bit easier, like you say. And yeah, was it not well, a little bit of your thought, I, I don't fancy battling away again? Or No, it was at, um, my contract was one year with a year option. So we went into the June. And in the December, my wife just said to me, look, I'm, 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 I, don't, I don't like it here. She didn't like living in... We lived right in the middle of Paris. Right. We were like 150 yards from the Arc de Triomphe. And we were four streets away from the Champs-Élysées. So for us, we were, you couldn't get any more dead sense than what we were. And the place never sleeps. And you don't sleep because you can't. It's just that noisy. And uh, by the December, she sort of said to me, look, I want to go back. And I was like, oh, okay, what, like for a whole day, you know? Because she'd already used six flights to and from in the six months we were there. She was at home for two weeks and with me for two weeks. And um, it just so happened that Halifax came and said, look, you know, we're sorry, we want you to come back. And I managed to get myself a three-year contract out of them. To come. I said, I'm not coming back, let's get a three-year contract. And they said, well, go on then. And just as I'd gone to the club and spoken to them and said, look, I'm, I want to leave. I'm really sorry. You know, expect them to penalise me in some way with financially. And they paid me up for the, for the year and said, fine, you know, thank you for your, for your service. And then I got a call of uh, the coach from La Rochelle, who was an Australian guy. Um, La Rochelle is south of France, uh, um, sort of on the coast, but right down the bottom. Sunny, beautiful place. And they offered me a four-year deal to go there on more money than I was on in Paris. And uh, like my wife had said she wanted to come home. So I still use that one now. I've got a bargaining ship over her. Oh, yeah. We left, we left the south of France in the sun to go back to Halifax again. So... Um, but then again, again, no regrets. I had some really good times in Super League at Halifax and really enjoyed it. Because you, you, you love uh, What was the difference between coming from the 90s to Super League? Because it was just getting quicker and quicker, doesn't it? The sport just evolved. Like you look at some of them old highlights from the 90s and 2000, they're so different from now, isn't it? How the games played, the size of people. Yeah. I tell you what, I feel really, really privileged to be part of. I was part of old school rugby league when it was five meter rule when they've kicked the ball into the corner in the middle of winter and as a winger, you had to pick it up and scoot away from marker in the corner where there's only one way you can go. And you look up and you've got the likes of, you know, Calvin Skerritt and Neil Cowie, them standing five metres away from you, to the Super League era when the, the speed of the game was so much more. I mean, it's getting more now, but it was so much more then. When your props were still props, you know, they're yeah. still rotund men were very strong where now your props are you know they're like second rowers but just two foot taller um i was quite privileged to be part of that and that so i'm, I'm happy with that it was nice which one do i prefer probably the the middle sort of between that mud piled five meter rule and the speed session we've got on now sort of in that middle sort of the 2000s early 2000s that's where i think i'll enjoy it the most I think rugby league misses a trick as well, not having more trophies. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, you used to have the floodlit trophy, and yeah. I, I can't remember. They had, like, a couple others, wasn't there? John Player. John Player. There was a Regal Trophy. There was a, the Challenge Cup. There was a Yorkshire Cup. There was Yorkshire and Lancashire played against each other. There was loads of different things. And 
I get I get where clubs don't want to release players playing in all these different competitions a lot of the time, but it gives you more focus and it's more crowd. And even if you had one other one other competition other than the Challenge Cup, I think it'd be great. Yeah, because it gives like even if St. Ellen send the second team, it gives someone in like the lower leagues that chance. Because yeah. at the moment. I, I don't see a team from the first division ever winning the Challenge Cup. I don't see yeah. them ever beating Wigan Leeds. But in a like you say, a John Player or something like that, where yeah. Wigan maybe send a second team away to Halifax or Bradford on a Tuesday night, there's always that chance, isn't there? At the minute, you're just eliminating the opportunities for lower clubs to maybe take that next leap up to win. You something. are, and the the goal between them them you know even even let's go even your Halifax, Bradford, Leeds, Sheffields, Batleys. Warrington, uh, sorry, Whitehaven and Workington and, you know, your Super League clubs now, even go your lower Super League clubs, like your Salfords and, and a few Wakefield and stuff like that. The gulf is so huge yeah. between them now that it's, I think they should just have a, a Challenge Cup for the, for, for the Super League and a Challenge Cup for the Championship sides and below because them clubs they are never going to get there. You know, they, I think all they're doing is they, um, they're playing for their payday, aren't they? They get through to the professional leagues and you get like a Wiggins and Pats or someone like that. They want to play against a St. Ellen's or a Wigan just to get a big payday out of it. And you even see now they're, they're even transferring the game from their, their grounds to the Super League ground because they're going to get more money doing that. And I think that, that, again, that's a greed thing. It's just money now. It's not the, the love of that competition anymore. Well, they had the National Rail, which I thought was quite good for them lower leagues. Mm. Day out at Blackpool, it was always packed, yeah. wasn't it? And I, 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 I don't know why that stopped, but... No. That... Short-sighted, man. They're, they're blocking themselves. That that used to make money. They used to make money in that all the time. They had said that. but And it gives the younger referees a chance to be in, on a big stage. Yeah. A lot of yeah. You know, instead of going to, you know, wherever you're going to, Rochdale or Oldham, and you've got like, you know, 200 people there. You have Blackpool, maybe three or 4,000 people there. It brings them players on, uh, them, co- them referees on to step up to championship and then Super League level. Because I, I think a big level as well, and I think to try and catch Rugby Union, what they should do is have like a nines comp, you know, like mm. Blackpool one weekend, amateur club teams can enter, they maybe start on the Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday the professional teams are there. Yeah. I just think something like that, because in the nines competition, you could get eight really fast friends together, there is a chance you could beat another mm. team. I, th- I think 17 aside, best team generally always wins. But you see yeah. it in Rugby Union with sevens, don't you? Where yeah. like, you've got teams like Japan and teams you never, like, that don't play, beating Australia quite regular. Well, you, you, you watch when, when the, the sevens competition's on, they have a series, don't they, for the yeah. Rugby Union. And they're getting full houses. They're getting 50,000 people watching over four or five days. You know, every single week in all the different places. You know, I'll I tell, tell you something that really got to me, that really upset me a lot, is um, I was working on, on the radio with BBC um, at Salford when England played against France. I'm going back quite a few years now. On the same night, England were playing against France at Twickenham. Twickenham, they had 90,000 people. We had 8,300. Yeah. For the same international. And it was just sad. And at... It bugs me that that you know I still think rugby league is is one of the best games in the world. Yeah. yeah. Like I say to you, you go from the nineties was too slow 
and too too ploddy. Now it's just too fast. Back to 2000, 2001, 2003, around there. I love that because that was good. There was still the shoulder charges in there that you saw and you could see people getting smashed. I mean, I broke my neck off. Of, I broke my neck in when I was playing for Oldham um, off a shoulder charge. Right. But I'm still, I'm still a big, I'm still a big um, backer of it. I still think it should be in there. I broke a bone in my neck. Um, Paul Medley, um, he was trying to tackle me from what from the inside, and somebody came from the outside and he and he hit me and he shoulder charged me and I fell on the ground and they fell on top of me and broke broke a bone in my neck. And you know, still. I still think there should be shoulder charges. I still think there should be big hits because that's what people want to see. Well, you look on uh, YouTube, don't you? And if you put like rugby league big hits in mm. and it's shoulder bads, Sonny Bill and all the people from yeah. Sam Burgess, it's got, it's got millions of hits, hasn't it? Because mm. it doesn't take a genius to think, oh, people like this side of the game. And I th it, it's just like anything. If you do a high tackle, someone could get damaged. And it's the same with the shoulder bads. If it's done wrong, yeah. someone could get damaged. But I, th I think on average, I, I Generally, it was all right, wasn't it? I, I never used to see a problem in it in the match if it was ruled properly. If you run the right way, you're not going to get hit, are you? All right, put a sidestep on. I always came on a scissors ball because you couldn't get shoulder charge off a scissors ball. Yeah, so I used to wait until the very last minute, and then I knew I was going to get a leg tackle if I, if I do it right, and never really going to get a square on smacking. And people used to go, "Why are you always running a scissors ball?" I said, "Well, got to keep this face in one piece, man. I'm not having my head knocked off my shoulders." And uh, but yeah, it was. It, I think rugby league is is losing a lot by doing that. I think you'll get crowds back again, and and uh, you know this thing has gone from being a Saturday, Sunday, maybe a Friday night, and now being a Thursday night as well. People can't go watch rugby on a Thursday night and then get to get to work on a Friday morning again. You know, it's just asking too much of our supporters. Well, well, the Thursday night game is is puzzling because if you play rugby league. 99% of people are training Tuesday, Thursday night. Yeah. That much kicks off at half seven. You generally get to training six, half six. You're in the shower or you're not even yeah. home yet watching it. So it always, just an yeah. odd, isn't it? And people yeah, yeah. want to have a drink, don't they, when you're watching rugby league? Friday well, nights was always good. And Yeah, just, you know, I just think this Thursday night thing has just gone, it's gone silly. They've got their reasons for it. They say that it's working. So you got to, you got to, you got to just take their word for it. But, I think if it went back to your main game on a Friday night, you know, your Wigan Saints or your Bradford Leeds or whoever, Friday night, the rest on Saturday and Sunday, I think that would that, you know, bring back the big shoulder charges, bring back a bit of fighting as well. Yeah, why not? Well, I, I always think about the, the leagues below, Super League as well, you know, the, the Halifax League. I, I don't even know what it's called now, it's changed up many times. I think National Division One. I. I don't yeah. know why they don't try and get their own TV deal. I don't know, because do they get much money off Super League? You always feel like they could maybe negotiate their own deal and the, just, the, just try the and problem, go that the way. The problem with Rugby League in, over here is that Rugby League runs it their own way. They're like a little, uh, a little German settlement in the middle and they're little Hitlers and they want, every, they want to save everything that goes on. They don't have a breakaway like the championship, getting their own TV deal, their own sponsors. It's all going to come from, from RFL. And that's the problem you've got because everything comes from the one place. It's like the old Emerging Nations World Cup, you know, where South Africa played a few times, Cook Islands were playing. Um, you had Papua New Guinea won that quite a few years. But you had like really weird countries. You know, Serbia came, Germany came, Norway came, Sweden came. All that's been kicked now. 
They don't have, yeah. they don't even have that anymore. And yeah, because they want to run Super League Europe, want to run everything that run is super, anything that's rugby league they want to run, and they need to to farm it out to different places. They need to find more, get more committees. Championship clubs, I think, should have their own own group and find their own things and and set themselves up the way they do. Um, and and we'll have to see what happens. But until until rugby league Europe and and super and RFL give away some of the reins, they're never going to get any better. It reminds me a bit like, uh, I you probably don't watch it, but Darts, Darts in like the 90s was like mm. on BBC, they'd done it this way for years. And then a few of them broke away to the Sky mm. Sports one. And it was a bit like, no, we've done this. And then you look at it now, like the Sky Sports one's flourishing, it's massive. Mm. And I feel like Dart, like rugby league's a bit like where Darts was. They're just too, this is how we do it. We've always yes. done it this way. And I, I just feel like it needs modernised. You look at like how MMA's advertised, boxing advertised. Mm -hmm. yeah. Then you look at rugby league. You're like, it's just it's just miles behind, isn't it? I don't, I don't anything on TV about rugby league unless it's uh, uh, on 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 Sky itself. Yeah, you know, Sky might say there's a game of the weekend, Wigan Saints, and that's all you see. You don't see anywhere else. You don't see anybody talking about it. And it's, uh, you know, we could sit here and talk about that all night, can't we? How we think we should fix it, but and that's what I mean. I have just then people have got to fix it, and until they take uh, take suggestions from other people, I don't think it's ever going to change. Uh, the, the thing before I go, why did you want to become a ref? Because when I played rugby, I I actually don't think there's anything I'd rather do not do than be a referee. Because if you're in a bad mood, you take it out on the ref, and yeah. everyone hates him after the match because there's going to be one team, one set of supporters that hate him because they got beat. Why, why did you go down that, that path? I was working, I did a lot for the BBC with James Dayton on BBC Leeds. And uh, we did a game, it was Leeds v St. Helens. And I was at St. Helens. And I was on a, on a Friday night. And during the game, Steve Ganson was, was refereeing. And, you know, Steve was my boss at the, at the referees. And we've spoken about this many a time. And we've had a laugh about it. I just said he was hopeless. He was blind. And if he was two foot tall, he might probably see where the ball was. And, you know, I, I made some, some, some remarks about it, jokingly, but saying that he had a shocker. Um, on the way home, my phone rings and I pick it up and it was uh, Stuart Cummings. And uh, he just went, um, we really can't have, we don't want you ex-pros, you know, berating the referees because it, it makes it sound really bad. I said, well, I'm there to tell the truth. You know, I'm not going to tell you a lie on here. I'm not going to tell them a lie over there. Yeah. And he just went, well, why don't you give it a go and see how hard it is? And I said, sure, tell me when it is. And I think two weekends later, there was a, a referee's course. I went on it. My first game I did was, oh, my first game was um, uh, Rochdale and Oldham Reserves. So they threw me around the deep end on that one. I think my second game was Hull Dockers versus Hull, another Hull team. And I went, oh, gee, this is, but I found it quite, quite good and quite interesting. And I really took to it. And I don't think I was getting as much abuse from the players as what other referees were getting, because I think I'd been there, I'd, I'd played, I know what was going on. There were some situations where I could, de I could defuse something if what was going to happen by knowing, you know, yeah. saw a guy swing an arm over there. I could see verbal going on there. I knew that if, when that guy gets the ball again, getting close, make sure that they, you know, that they keep away. And I really enjoyed it. And I got my chance in a championship. I've become a grade one. So first ex-player to become a grade one referee. 
So, you know, another first, first for yeah. steroids, first for refereeing. <laughs> I love the first. But I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of refereeing, every single minute. And it wasn't until the right at the very end when I decided to give it up because of a conversation that I had. Um, I was called before a game and I was told how the game should finish. And I said, I was in London and I said, I can't have that. You can't be telling me what to do and how this game should finish because that, that makes it sound like I'm affecting the game and that can't happen. And they just went that uh, it was London, the Oldham and, uh, and Scott Naylor, who was then coach of Oldham, had been complaining that they were getting penalised to death. So the rugby league referees had been down to Oldham that week to work with them on, on their technique to knock it. So when I came on that weekend to referee them in London, I got told London must win the game because they're the better side, but Oldham must win the penalty count. And this was in the warm-up, and we were mic'd up as well. So the, the touch judges heard, the match commissioner heard, and they were saying, what are you going to do? And I said, nothing. You forget that call was ever made. I just said, I'm not doing that. I said, you can sack me if you want, but I'm not doing that. And that happened to be my last game because next week I just said, I'm not doing it again. I'm finished. If when, when they start to tell you what, how the game should finish and how this should be, then, then it's time for me to get out. You know, I'm controversial enough without trying to throw games as well. Well, it, um, it's weird looking in because I, I've noticed that in games because you're watching the match and just say that team gets a few penalties. I always feel like the referee tries to even it up. So you give that team, and because the penalty counts, if you look, they're always sort of average, aren't they? Or they try yeah. to make them average. I've noticed that before when I've watched rugby before. But I'll tell you how we were taught. All right, you were given ten tokens. So use those ten tokens. We don't want any more than ten penalties in a game. But when you give a penalty and it's a spot-on one, that's one of your tokens gone. So try not to give away your tokens too quickly. And that's how it was explained to us exactly. So. You know, we used to have the touch judges. We used to be in, in biked up with the touch judges and to the the, the um, match commissioner on the side. At halftime, you'd come in and what's the penalty count? They're telling you the penalty count's 4-1. Okay, fine. We have to work harder with this team. But you shouldn't have to work harder with that team. If you've given five penalties, four to one team, one to the other team, that's what it is. Yeah. But yeah. we were getting told to try and keep it a bit more even. Um, you know, chat to the players more. Well, you can't chat to the players when one guy's swinging an arm at somebody else's head. What do you say to him? Hey, don't do that again, you know, because then you know it's going to kick off if you don't do anything about it. So you have to do something about it. And uh, that part of it was scrutinized too much, you know, in the video sessions. And when you're an amateur, an amateur referee uh, getting paid part-time wages to be in there Tuesday and Thursday and then going somewhere on a Friday, Saturday and a Sunday, it just... They're asking a lot of the referees that are there now. You know, the, the, the pool of professional referees are getting bigger. Yeah. But it's those ones in the championship and below that get sent to a Whitehaven. Yeah. I, you know, I love Whitehaven. I love going to Whitehaven. But you go to Whitehaven and you, you sometimes stay overnight, you know, but you, you're buying your own food. And you and it's, it's a, they pay for the hotel room. But, you know, it's costing you money to go away to referee a game. I mean, you're doing it for 80 quid in in the lower leagues and then championship, you're getting like maybe 140 or 150. You know, you're losing money and it becomes, you have to do it for the love of it. 
I loved every minute of it. And luckily, my business was strong enough so that I could go away and do these games. But it just when I got told that that game there, I just decided then that was me done. I couldn't do it anymore. And still, I would love to have carried on. But I was going to say because it makes it makes a huge difference having someone that played and because you get the feeling sometimes a lot of referees are like the kids that was a milk monitor at school or the one that grasped yeah, yeah. on everyone it, like a bit of a snide so a person that played just gets yeah. that little bit more respect because you think oh well he's just he's on a level playing field it, it, it was good it was good I think more players should do it yeah. but they have to change the system a little bit they need to change the system there needs to be more money for the referees because if you want to you know for, let's use an example if you want to get a, um, a Kevin Stinfield into refereeing, and you said to him, here we are, man, I'm going to send you to Whitehaven for 80 quid. What are you going to say? I don't think uh, Kevin's going to do it, is he? Exactly. He's going to say, oh, look, you know, fair play, I'll do one or two of these. I'm not doing that every week. And I found myself doing many, many miles a month, going to all the places on as far away as possible. Um, and I did them, and I enjoyed it, but like I say, when when that when that happened, I just thought that was it. I'm done now. Oh, no, well, uh, Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure. But I'm glad to catch you up, and uh, some of the stuff that you've been through is unbelievable. So, cheers for coming on, pal. No, enjoyed it, mate. Anytime you want. All right, cheers. Thanks a lot, Jamie. All right, talk to you later. Cheers. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.